Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Gary David, is a professor of sociology and an expert on the medical record. In this conversation, he shares what he's learned over the years about that topic and how it makes an impact on healthcare, sometimes for the worse. Here to share his expertise is Gary David. Gary, I'm delighted to welcome you to the Health Design Podcast. It's wonderful that you're able to take the time to share some of your expertise with us. Great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me and having me. I want to begin our conversation on a topic that I know is very close to your heart, and that is the medical record. You said something before we began this podcast, and that was in relation to the function of that medical record. Perhaps you could repeat that for our listeners. Sure. I started doing research on medical records actually by looking at the work of a profession called medical transcription or medical transcriptionists. And one of the reasons why I started doing that research was because the belief was you could just replace these largely women with automated technologies such as speech recognition or electronic health record where a physician enters in the information themselves. And what quickly became clear was that the medical record is a what we would call a boundary object in sociology, and I'm a sociologist, and that means that it spans across different institutional domains. It's used as by a clinician for treatment. It's used by patients for understanding their condition. It's used by caregivers for helping to coordinate different kinds of issues. It's used by hospitals for billing and reimbursement. It might be used by lawyers for medical for uh, legal reasons and epidemiologists for research. So there's a lot of different audiences for this one thing. And what makes that really complicated is who is it created for and how is it going to be used? And so the medical record itself, having so many different audiences, becomes really challenging in terms of how do you construct it to reach all of those audiences and fulfill all their needs? And if you can't, how are those needs prioritized in a healthcare system? From clinician to billing and reimbursement to patient to caregiver to research to legal, et cetera. And it's that prioritization or maybe misprioritization that can really impact clinical care and patient advocacy work. The concerning thing about what you've just described is that there is therefore a third person in the meeting between doctor or healthcare provider and patient. And that is what we euphemistically call the beast. In other words, the computer and the need to feed that beast with data. Has that been shown in your work? Yeah, anecdotally, I think, you know, I've not done a big sample size of surveys of clinicians, but especially when you think about EHR systems, electronic health record systems, those structures are set up not by physicians per se, but by IT professionals. And they're administered by administrators. And so we've heard physicians say things like, I I know I want to give my patient this test, but I can't get the test approved in the system unless the patient has these kinds of symptoms. So therefore, I'm going to put these symptoms as being present on examination, whether they are or not, in order to get the test. And what that ends up indicating falsely to anybody who's looking at the metrics then is these symptoms are always present on this condition. When it might not be the case, it's just what we would call ad hoc that people ad hoc systems to accomplish their work. 
And that doesn't matter if it's healthcare, if it doesn't matter if it's somebody who's doing sales or any kind of enterprise system, people try to find workarounds. And so if you're trying to find a workaround because of this beast, right, you know there's another audience, then that system is going to impact how clinicians and others view the medical record and what goes into it. It is worrying that any clinician might make up signs and symptoms simply to feed the beast, to work the system, to provide the data that will ultimately give them access to whatever resource they think they need. But more worrying than that is the fact that they are not paying attention to the patient. In order to make an accurate diagnosis, they have to make eye contact, they have to face the patient, they have to give the patient undivided attention in a way that they are listening closely to what is being said. Therefore, apart from fabricating data, you are making an error in the diagnosis, the way that data is being collected, the way that information is being processed by the medical record system is a key part of the reason that healthcare tends to fail. And, and thinking back a step on this question of introducing error, one of the things I often tell my students when I'm teaching courses on experience design is don't confuse efficiency for quality. That just because something's more efficient doesn't mean it's higher quality. And so with an electronic health record system, one of the things we saw when we spoke with physicians and others was the strategy of copy and paste. So they would copy from a one record in the system and paste it into another record they were submitting. Now it's very fast, but it also can introduce a lot of error if, if there was error present in the original record. And, and the you know, error for whom? I remember uh, my middle daughter has a number of health issues. And in one of her medical records, it said that my wife's labor was spontaneous, but it wasn't, it was induced. And, I, and she was having foot surgery. And I said to the doctor, this is wrong in the medical record. I read medical records because I do this research and everyone should read their medical record. And the doctor said, well, don't worry about that because it's not going to affect how I treat her. And I said to him, yeah, but you're not the only one using this. <laughs> and so it might not, and he was right. It's not going to affect what he's doing on a foot surgery. And it has nothing to do with his clinical care. And he's a great surgeon and we had great outcomes with the surgery. But the record was still wrong. Now, is this a critical error or is it a minor error? Well, that, that's a matter of context and use. And if we're trying to build for comorbidity or complexity, it could have a big impact. Or if, if people are doing research, it could have an impact, right? I mean, so there's a lot of ways that we're trying to think about content and audience. And this might be projecting down the road a number of steps. But when you're dealing with a record that has or a document has such huge importance to people's lives, especially in the United States, the way our medical system works. It's really important to get it right, but yet doctors and clinicians aren't often given the tools to take the time to do that. You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. They aren't given the tools, and possibly it's because the tools are imperfect. But more important than that, they are not given the time, because 
in feeding the beast, in collecting the data, in processing the information that will allow the clinician to make the necessary claim for that service, the clinician is focused on the machine and not on the patient. The patient has almost become a secondary issue in healthcare. Yeah, it's it's definitely a concern. And this goes back to, again, this idea of efficiency versus quality, that the medical record historically has been under the control of the physician, for better or for worse. And there's plenty of reasons why we can sit there and say, well, the lack of standardization, the lack of interoperability or sharing of a paper record that sits in a physician's office may not be a great situation for patients in coordinating care. At the same time, to what extent when we standardize medical records through these systems, which aren't suited to physician practice, but are based on a fictional best practice, to what extent does that inhibit or impair or interfere with the physician's ability to do their work? And that becomes a larger question, right? Is that usually these systems, from the research we did, these systems aren't examined for the impact they have on the quality of the document. It's assumed that since it's technological and more efficient, it's got to be better. But that assumption can lead to a lot of problems down the road for not just patients, but also physicians, but also potentially healthcare systems if the error in that record ends up having a significant impact on someone's well-being, health, or life. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and be a complete Luddite about this, but at the same time, the notion that because it's new and shiny, it's automatically better is needs to be carefully considered, if not challenged. It does need to be challenged, but the analogy of the baby in the bathwater could be taken a little bit further in saying that in fact that baby sitting in that bathwater is being hurt. So perhaps what we need to do is to redesign the medical record or however we collect that data so that it doesn't. Do you know what that might look like? When I teach courses on design, one of the things that I often emphasize is understanding the lived experiences and worlds of those who are stakeholders in relation to that system. And we can talk about experience design, such as customer experience versus user experience versus patient experience. Who's the customer? The customer might be the CIO, the CTO, the CFO, the CEO of the healthcare system. That's the customer. The user could be the physician or the clinician. And then, of course, we have the patient experience and the caregiver experience. And each of those needs to be considered very carefully. Just for instance, I was talking with the pediatrician of my children once, and he knew I was doing this research. And I said, can any physician get access to your patient's medical records? And he said, no, he is like, of course not. Why would I want that? I want to know if a, if a physician wants to get access to one of my patient's medical records, I want to know why. I want to know what's going on. And one of the goals, though, of this medical record system is interoperability. Or there's another one. I ask physicians, do you want your patients to see their medical records? To which they would respond, no. I want them to see their medical information, but the record's my tool. And there might be things in that record 
that I don't necessarily want them to see at that point because I don't want to alarm them. It has not been confirmed. There might be other issues going on. It's, it's for their own use. If a patient's not compliant, is that in the medical record? So this idea of sharing and interoperability itself might be flawed because physicians can have very good reasons for not wanting to share all the information they're putting into this document, which they view as being a tool for their job. Whereas administrators might look at it very differently, a tool to maximize reimbursement. And patients might look at it very differently as um, something to help them coordinate care, get treatment, and, and possibly get reimbursement for services depending upon their insurance. So we have different groups, different stakeholders, different intended outcomes, and in designing systems, we kind of have to pay attention to all of those. Because if we don't, and we start prioritizing or misprioritizing, someone's going to be on the short end of that. And that's where we start to have very bad impacts on these very important systems. The situation that I can conceive of where a doctor wrote something in the notes that they didn't intend the patient to see is one where a patient appears to be inebriated or otherwise incapacitated by virtue of substance abuse. The doctor might choose to document that so that when the patient is no longer under the influence of whatever it is they've taken, they can be questioned about whether the issue of substance abuse is a problem in their lives. I would imagine that that is not something that the doctor intended the patient to see. I know Australia just lost the, uh, the T20 World Championships. England won. My condolences to folks in Australia. <laughs> and so someone comes and sees their physician and says, I'm really depressed that Australia lost the T20 World Championships. And, and doctor writes down depressed, right? Okay, well, like, what's that do? What's that then do in the medical record? Now, it's a colloquial expression, but guess what? It's probably, at least in the United States, at the higher level of bill, billing. <laughs> if a patient has this comorbidity, depending upon how it's coded, and that gets super complicated. But now that it's in the record, what's that do to the patient's life insurance, health insurance, um, subsequent treatment? Um, does it get flagged in the system for follow-up care? Does it then get triggered to, you know, to some other part of the, of the system? This is hypothetical, and hopefully a physician would hear what the patient was saying when the patient said, I'm really depressed that Australia lost the championship. But at the same time, we can see how these things can, can function. I've even had people who are technologists say, well, what we really want to do is have like basically an Alexa-type system that will automatically extract medical codes from the conversation with the physician and put them into the system. I'm like, oh, dear God, please don't do that. Because there needs to be a filtering that goes on that translates, do I want to put this in here right now? Do I want to just make notes to follow up with it, to your point? Is this something that we're treating or is it something we're just watching? And if you have just an Alexa-type system, extracting using, you know, extracting through natural language processing or tagging or things like that, who's in control now? Is it the physician in control of the record or is it the system in control of the record? And 
we kind of see in many instances that struggle taking place right now of who's in control over it and for whose purposes is this thing being created. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. You're right, it's not trivial. And I'm reminded that a number of years ago in the UK, the NHS had decided that patients with certain symptoms presented in primary care would be expedited for follow-up of cancer symptoms or what were considered cancer symptoms that were presented and documented in the notes. All of the research was based on what was documented in the notes. No one, it seems, challenged the notion that the notes were inaccurate and therefore the, the research and the whole policy was based on something that could be challenged as being unreliable. These are not information systems, these are data systems. And because they're data systems, information is made out of them. People make information out of data by adding context. What I always tell my students when I do consulting work or when I speak in front of audiences, I say data plus context equals information. So what's the context of that data? Well, the context is that data is rooted in the process that you described, okay? And when we understand that context, that data means something completely different than the assumptions people are putting on it post hoc. And that's why, pay, you know, I teach courses on ethnography for experience design. I do consulting work on this as well. We talk about, let's see how people do their jobs. Let's see how they use the system. Let's see how these records are created. And then we'll understand better what that data represents. And once we understand what that data represents, then it becomes actionable in a more valid way than just our assumptions about what this data means by placing on the context we choose to place on it. I love that you use the word context because in fact, in healthcare, we know increasingly less about the context in which our patients are presenting. We interrupt them within 11 seconds of their being in the consulting room and the research documents very clearly that we know very little about the detail of our patients' lives. And if, from what you're saying, what we document is also inaccurate, then we are multiplying the amount of error that we introduce into the system. Yeah, absolutely. I have, I have some really good friends in the UK, some in Australia who do work in something called conversation analysis, where they study the intricate details of doctor-patient interaction. I've done conversation analysis in other areas, not that area, but they, you know, they will look at the, you know, these, these things you talk about are the nature of interruptions, how questions are asked, how, how uh, exams can be interrupted, uh, attention directed towards the keyboard or to the monitor in a way that can, if not inhibit, maybe impede or affect the flow of information being exchanged. So that becomes all very important in terms of the consideration and, and context always matters. And as a sociologist who does design work, I'm always interested in understanding better what that context is. Really quickly, in, 
in the area of user experience, people tend to focus on what we think about as functionality or human computer interaction. So one person interacting with a technology or a screen to see if it's more usable. There's another approach, which is called computer supported cooperative work or CSCW, which comes out of Scandinavia, which is you can't understand these technologies unless you understand how they're embedded in institutional practice and systemic relationships, okay? So that computer-supported cooperative work, what in what way is the technology facilitating, inhibiting, disrupting, impacting the nature of collaborative work? And even though the physician might be treating the patient on their own, it's still a collaborative enterprise because in order for the hospital to get reimbursed, the doctor has to record the, what's present. In order for the doctor to record what's present, the patient has to come into the office and accurately report what they're experiencing, right? And so we see this integrated chain, production chain, where the technology serves this crucial function, but the technology needs to be a tool and not a determinant. And by, by that, I mean it's a tool to be used to improve this process not a determinant used to disrupt or structure it from based on decisions made from outside the clinical profession and into the engineering or technological professions. It feels, Gary, as if we're not there yet when it comes to the documentation side of healthcare. It's very possible now to be very efficient. You can go into a healthcare system and at the click of a button, have drop-down menus that will allow you to record things that may or may not be accurate. And in fact, you may choose the gray box, which is where you're documenting something that you're not quite sure is accurate in terms of your assessment, but allows you to access resources and investigations which would not be possible if you didn't tick that particular box. Efficiency, as you say, does not equate to quality. Yeah, exactly. And it makes me think about the ways in which healthcare is a system. And being a system, there are all of these other factors that are in some ways extraneous to the clinical encounter, but always present in the clinical encounter. There is a profession in the United States called clinical documentation specialist. And I don't know if there's anywhere else in the world. I did a little research on this, but never published it. But the, the clinical documentation specialist's job is to make, they, this is what I was told, to make the patient look as sick on paper as they are in real life. And so what they would do is, or what they do is, they will go through, especially for certain kinds of conditions like, like anemia or sepsis, and they will see if everything that was present on admission was documented because if it wasn't present on admission, but was acquired within the hospital, then it can't be built. If it was present on admission, then it can be built because it came in from outside. And so a lot of time is put into trying to make sure that these features, these complications and comorbidities are present in the documentation because it affects the billing rate, but it might have nothing to do with the actual diagnosis or care. But this is a job that is important because it starts to create opportunities for hospitals 
to increase their case mix indices, which again has nothing to do with the doctor's reimbursement, unless the doctor might be a hospitalist and that even changes things up. But this is like, at least in the United States, the complexity of it, when you try to describe this to people who don't know, their jaws just kind of drop. And it's, it's like watching a George Romeo, like zombie movie, you're like, you know, the beast is, you know, keeps coming back, even though we thought we killed it, or it's going out of control. And yeah, it's kind of like that. Once you look in and see how the sausage is made, you never want to eat a sausage again, except you got to eat sausage because everyone needs a sausage because that's the hospital, right? The hospital is like this sausage that you can't live without. And so sometimes I think about with my research, it's better not to know that all this is going on. But at the end of the day, it's important to know and to talk about on venues like this so people are more aware of of how this happens and what that medical record means. What seems to be getting worse is that the beast is getting stronger in the sense that so many people are benefiting from the electronic health record, both financially and in all kinds of other ways, so that those who challenge the value of it in any way have their voices drowned out by those who are now very powerful and have the resources to challenge anyone who is questioning the zeitgeist. It's important anytime someone's adopting an enterprise-wide system, like an EHR is, is to say, what's our goal here? And again, from the stakeholder perspective, you can have many competing goals. The, anytime you implement, you adopt and implement an enterprise-wide system, like an EHR, it's going to be political. And I say that not in a contentious way, but I'm saying there are different interests that have to be negotiated and understood. And so it's important that those voices are authentically considered and incorporated and heeded throughout the process, because it's not just a matter of functionality in terms of whether or not these systems are adopted to their full potential to be utilized for the promise that they actually hold. But if you don't actually listen to what people have to say, then when they interfere with practice, when they interfere with people's ability to do their jobs and to not change their job from being a physician into a data entry clerk, nothing against data entry clerks, but that's not their job. You know, I was watching one time um, an anesthesiologist taking a lot of time to enter in information using a speech rec system that was front end that was supposed to increase efficiencies. And I'm like, here's this person who, you know, really earns a lot of money for the healthcare system and you're having him do what now? And I will say, at least it made him read the note that was faxed in. It's still amazing that we're using fax machines, at least in healthcare. Like healthcare is a place where technology never dies. And so he at least was reading the faxed in report because he was literally reading the report of the patient record that was referred into the system. And someone said, well, we should just bring in the, 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 the record right into the system. I said, no, don't do that. At least he's reading it. Because if it's brought right into the system, I guarantee he probably won't. So at least this way, as inefficient as it was, he was reading it and he probably had a better idea of what it said than if it was just brought into the system. That assumes that what he was reading was accurate. And I will add one more thing I meant to say. It's really funny that everything old is new again. So when, before medical transcription was a thing, there were these people called scribes. And the scribe would sit in the exam room with the physician and write down what was happening for the physician as the physician was carrying out the exam. Super. Then we ended up getting technology to do dictation. 
So then physicians would dictate the encounter and the transcriptionist would be, you know, the ladies in the room someplace in the hospital would be like, you know, typing this out. And then we had the technology that, oh, they don't have to be in the hospital. They can be anywhere. Okay, so now they're anywhere. So now you have transcriptionists using dictation anywhere. Then we're like, oh, we don't need them to be anywhere. We have electronic health record systems. Physicians can do it themselves. Great. Well, now guess what? Guess what's making a comeback? Scribes. Because now scribes are in the room with a physician filling in the information in the electronic health record. <laughs> so it's interesting to see this thing go kind of full circle in the under the guises of efficiency that now you have a scribe there filling out the record. And now they're like, well, maybe the scribe doesn't need to be there. Maybe the scribe can be virtual. So you can put the scribe anywhere. So you, you kind of see how this thing kind of, as technology is this dictator of sorts that's driving the processes rather than thinking about what's the best process. The technology is driving process versus practice driving process. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. So where to from here? If you had free reign, if you were able to decide what the technology does next, what would that be? I think it's important, again, to start with participatory design approaches. And again, I teach experience design. And I, when I talk to my students about this, I, I kind of I categorize into three buckets, designing at, designing for, and designing with. Designing at is the traditional engineers know best. No offense to engineers. You're all lovely people out there. Engineers know best. We don't need to talk to anybody. We'll just design it and you'll use it. Designing for is more of a traditional design thinking approach where we're going to do interviews, understand personas, create journey maps. And then we're going to go back. Once we collect this data, we're going to go back and we're going to design it and then implement it. Designing with is integrating stakeholders throughout the design process. And as sticky and as fraught as that might seem, it's better than the outcome, which is devoting a ton of resources to creating a system that ultimately does not integrate well into the organization and could result in errors as a result of that lack of integration and that lack of adoption. And so that's one part, that's the design part. And then post-implementation, there needs to be what I call a post-implementation analysis, or what I used to call a post-implementation technological analysis, which also stands for P-I-T-A, which also as an American expression, refers to pain in the blank. <laughs> so a post-implementation technological analysis to really understand how it's being used and what the impact is on the thing that's being created for these different audiences. And then thinking about ways of designing creative solutions so that the patient can get one version, the clinician can get another version. Maybe folks who are in another space coding can get another version. It goes, you know, legally, what's the, what's the real version of medical record? Well, that's another conversation because if you have three or four versions floating out there, what's the, what's the actual one? But that's something that we need to discuss because it's already happening. And there needs to be that conversation. So I think participatory, participatory design at the front end and then 
a close analysis of impact at the back end that then feeds back into subsequent redesign, customization, reformulation of our approaches. What's exciting about that approach is that we are using tools as tools. We're using things that we know can be deployed in healthcare to serve a purpose as opposed to becoming the slaves of that technology. It's always the best tool, the, the right tool for the right job. I can pull out a screw from a piece of wood using a hammer. It's probably better that I use a screwdriver or a drill. I can pound a nail using a screwdriver, better to use a hammer. So when I would be asked, can you use speech recognition to replace medical transcriptionists? I would say, well, tell me the specialization and I'll tell you the answer. If it was something like for radiology, yeah, sure, could be, because so much of radiological reports can be pretty standardized. And so there can be a, a, a nice integration of speech rec, front end or back end speech rec into radiological reports. Psychiatric reports, yeah, not so much, right? Because it's a different kind of tool and it's a different kind of, well, I should say it's a different kind of report, therefore a different kind of tool can be used. The problem, we run into a problem where if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If all you have is one system, then that's what you're going to use. I was talking to ophthalmologists about the use of the system and they were saying, yeah, we can't use this thing because it's not made for the way we do notes. Well, how do you do notes? Well, we'll draw dots with squiggly lines to represent something which makes sense to an ophthalmologist, which may make sense to nobody else. And oh, by the way, dental records are never integrated into any of this, even though oral health is a huge, has a huge impact on overall physiological health. But you talk to a dentist and they're like, do you ever send your medical records over to other doctors? They're like, no, they, and they wouldn't know what to do with it if they had it. And so different specializations have different needs. And if you create a, a one-size-fits-all solution or what I call least common denominator solution, then it's not going to fit anybody particularly well at all. And so it's, again, being strategic and purposeful in order to have the best outcomes for the stakeholders who are relying on this process to accomplish their goals, prioritizing patients and clinicians because the patient should be at the center of this entire process. What a fantastic note on which to end our conversation. The patient should be the center of the process. Gary David, I've learned an awful lot in our conversation, and I feel sure that our listeners too. You've also won our hearts here in Australia by acknowledging our pain. The 2022 cricket tournament will be expunged from the record. Well, there's always the Big Bash League. And I think that that should be coming up here fairly shortly. I'm probably the only American who could also talk about cricket on your podcast. So that's always, that's always fun. You've just guaranteed yourself another invitation to the show. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast. Serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.